Welcome to Kankakee Podcast, where we talk about the people and places of Kankakee County. I'm Jake Lamore, and this is the second episode in a series we are calling Meet the Mayor. And the second mayor of Kankakee County that we are meeting is actually the current mayor as of the day we're recording this, the current mayor of Hopkins Park, and that is Mayor Mark Hodge. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jake. I'm glad to be here. It's an honor to have you here. We bumped into each other, I guess now it's almost been a couple months ago, mm-hmm. or a month and a half ago. We were at the State of the County Breakfast right. that the Kankakee County Chamber of Commerce puts on every year. Mm-hmm. It's always a great event just to find out where all the different organizations and the municipalities and things like that stand in the county. We happen to be sitting at the same table. How about that? (laughs) So I was like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to say, hey, I'm working on this series. Are you interested in, in being a part of it? So were you born in Hopkins Park? No, I wasn't born in Hopkins Park. I was born actually in Chicago, Illinois in 1962, and then I moved out to Pembroke around 63 or 64. Okay, so you were very young. Very young. And did your family have ties to Pembroke? Just friends in the the area. I'm sure my parents just went out to visit sometime and found housing to be affordable and a good place. I have 10 brothers and 10 sisters, and you needed a lot of space. Oh, my gosh. How did 10, bro- wait, just 10 siblings total or 10 kids total? 21 children total. Oh, my is Lord. Yours, his, and mine. <laughs> so what was, I got to know, I, I have two brothers, that's it. So what what is it like growing up with that many siblings? I mean, your Thanksgiving feast must have been something. this last week, right? You know, it was really, as a kid growing up, so many people at the table, and my mom was an awesome cook, and she brought the family together. And we, just Christmas and Thanksgiving and other events, you know, we were somewhat poverty-stricken, but it was just the fact that we had family to share and enjoy those events that made it spectacular. So how many times did your parents forget your name? You know, my father, this was his, you know, because it was three boys in the house at last. And so he would walk into the room and he'd say, Mark, Rick, Tim, you know, and that. (laughs) One of you, I'm not sure which. Yeah. And so that's, you'd you'd all come because he was pretty rough guy. So you'd you'd snap to and and get over there pretty quick. Yeah. So your family moves to Pembroke Township. What do you remember at that time? Because you were just now probably coming into your memory at that age. Mm -hmm. 
So I remember the openness, the space, the quality of your neighbors, the, the children that you went to school with. And so we were raised with a lot of animals, hogs, cows, chickens, even had a pet monkey and a pet raccoon. What? Oh, yeah. A pet monkey? A what pet kind mon- of monkey? A spider monkey. Those yeah. are on the smaller end, right? Uh, no? Sort, sort of wiry type guy. So those ones that look kind of crazy-eyed? Or is that all monkeys? <laughs> that, maybe it's all of them. Yeah. His name was ben. 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 Ben the spider monkey. Yeah. Was he nice? Was You know, he was nice until you get around us young kids that like to be very active, and then he actually bit a few of us. <laughs> oh, my. Did you bleed? Did he bite you? Uh, no, he came at me, but he never bit me. He bit my siblings, though. And my mom would, you know, it's funny. She would treat him like one of the kids. She'd get the belt after him. And <laughs> <laughs> you get over here, yeah. Ben. Mm-hmm. Now, how in the world did your family have a come across a pet monkey? I have the slightest idea. Where in the world would you get a pet monkey and why? You know? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. If the circus just came to town and accidentally <laughs> left their pet monkey and was like, oh, well, I guess we got a new pet now. And, yeah. and this is Ben, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome yeah. to the family. So with all these animals around, it was a farm then that you were all raised on, or was well, it just neighbors had? No, we had uh, our own animals, you know, hogs and stuff like that. And then we branched off into a dual business with auto wrecking and farming together. And so we were raised up, you know, eating your own meat. You know, you raise your own meat, you grow your own crops and vegetables and things of that nature. And then on another side of the property, he had an auto wrecking yard where you would have used cars and people would come buy parts and things of that nature or have the car repaired. And that was right in Pembroke. Right in Pembroke. Does that still exist? I still own the property. Okay. And then when I became of age, I moved the business. Well, we were on a, a sort of a side street. I moved the business to Main Street. And so it's people come and they rent the business. I don't operate it personally myself anymore. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So did you ever learn how did your family actually do any slaughtering or anything like that of yourselves, or did that all get brought to a plant? Absolutely. I remember we would slaughter our hogs, cows, chickens. So you never got close to them. And I remember as a kid, the first time a rabbit was, oh my God, the shrieking noise that they make. (laughs) It's It's heartbreaking. But eventually you get used to it, and we would, when it came time to somebody wanted 20 or 30 chickens for whatever, we would have a, a family assembling line, and we would uh, what was ring, your, ring What was your neck. part? What uh, was your part in the line then? Remember? I would, I'm not sure, you know, it varied, but i tell you one distinct memory I had. Okay. We hit one of the chickens in the head one time, knocked him out, put him in, dunked him in the hot water, and we were plucking his feathers off, and he woke up. Oh my God. So he was, he was supposed to be gone. He was like supposed, he was supposed to, be, to be dead. Yeah, right. And we let him run around a few minutes with no feathers on. And then my mom said, you be, you're getting that meat dirty. Get that chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was funny. Wow. Man, what a different life. Yeah. You know, I always remember hearing my own family talk about how my great-grandmother used to go to you know, prepare the chicken. Right. And yeah. hearing that yeah. whole 
Yeah, because story. if you wanted chicken for a meal that day, you didn't have to go to the freezer. You go out to the barnyard, and you would get you a chicken and dress him out, and that would be it. Whatever other animal you might want. Mm-hmm. So you know, growing up in Pembroke, then what comes next for yeah. you and your family? I yeah. mean, it's it's quite a big family. <laughs> well, when we moved out there was about because I have brothers. My father, I keep a track of his age. It's my age plus 50 equals his age. So I'm 60. He would be 110. I have brothers. I'm 60. That would be 90 right now. So we had, there was a a widespread, a wide array, you know, but we all loved one another pretty much and kept in contact. But some, you know, I got to normal as I got older. But we just worked hard as a family. That's one thing my father and mother instilled at us is that you get up and not when you want to and you get up, you work hard and you go to school and you do the chores we have set out for you. And and that was it was really a good childhood because I truly value the things that I have today, you had to really, really work hard. You know, we was we were raised for quite a while in a single wide trailer. And so for, for a while, your ambition is to have your own trailer. Well, now I have uh, several homes, so <laughs> it's a little so different. did that many kids grow up in just a single trailer? So what we would do is we would get the trailer and then we would build an addition onto the trailer okay. to accommodate And then we would set a second trailer next to us. Okay. So at that time in Pembroke, are you living in Pembroke Township or are you actually in the village of Hopkins Park? We were in Pembroke Township. Okay. So you're in Township, in Pembroke Township. Where are you going? What was the school system like at that time? Were you going to... Was Well, at that time, I don't think it was St. Anne, but it is now to this day, right? Right. Well, the... Our, coming up as a kid, my first school was like what they, they call it Carver School now, but it was called East School when I was a kid. It was on the east end of town, and you had your first grade went there in kindergarten. And then we had a another school, which was called the North School, of course, on the north end of town, and but it was renamed to Ida Bush School. And you'd have your second and third graders there, and then you would have third fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, and eighth grade at Lorenzo R. Smith School. And and Lorenzo, was that? That's in Hopkins Park, right? It's or, geographically, but Hopkins Park was not established till like the 70s. Oh, really? I yeah, didn't realize right. that. Well, yeah, that particular, yeah, so it was Pembroke Township, and then we, where I'm at for Hopkins Park was like 70, 71, somewhere in that area. Oh, wow. So that's, I mean, that's fairly new to... Right. Considering the other establishments in the county. Right. So, right. I did, I, right. I didn't so the village, that. but there was some, they would call it Old Hopkins. You didn't have to really follow the history on that. So there was an area called Old Hopkins at one point, but then they moved that to a, a central area in, in the community and started the village of Hopkins Park. Okay. So what were, what were you interested in as a kid? What what fascinated you? Did you want did you want to become mayor or what what did you what did you want to what were your aspirations? Well, one of the things I was actively in part, participating in is I rode horses quite a bit. And as I got older, you know, just like most kids, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. 
And when I was in my junior year of high school, an opportunity came along that you didn't have to graduate high school. You could go as a junior from junior straight into the Marine Corps. You didn't have to be 18. All you did had to have was your parents' signature. Junior high? Like you didn't have to go to high school? You had to be a junior in high school. Oh, a junior in high school. Excuse right. me. Yeah, you okay. had to be a junior in high school. And so I went, I signed up at the age of 16. And when I was six, 17, one month and one day, I was in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so no, your senior year was in the Marines then or did Correct. you? Okay. Yeah. So was that just an opportunity you thought, oh, okay, this would be good? Or did you as a younger child think about joining the military? You know, to be honest, again, at that age, you really don't know what you want to do. I had no idea what direction. I knew my mom worked for the Department of Corrections. And so I had somewhat of an aspiration to do that. And so I served three years in the Marine Corps. And shortly after I got out, I, because I, of course, I was in the Marine Corps in California. San Diego? That was, was, that... That was a boot camp, and they, but it called Camp Pendleton. Yes, I have heard of Camp Pendleton. Yeah. And I was on what we would call Margaritaville. I'm sure some of your listeners <laughs> know Margaritaville. <laughs> it was the name of a camp on Camp Pendleton. Yeah. And from there... Probably far from Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville, I would imagine. You can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that was was really an opportunity to gain discipline, physical fitness, camaraderie, working with, you know, your peers to strive to advance. And I served three years there, probably the, the most rewarding, the best thing to prepare a young man for life, what's ahead. And so I, uh, after I got out in three years, I worked for a security company for a short period of time, and then I joined the California Department of Corrections, where I spent 26 and a half years of my life. Wow. So you yeah. did follow in your mom's footsteps. Absolutely. Absolutely. You ended up doing that. Yeah. So. You say your, your military experience was, was a good one in the Marine Corps. What year would that have been when you... Uh, I went in in 1979, February 1979. Peacetime, right? You didn't have to go overseas anywhere. Well, we did overseas tours, but I never had to go to a war zone. We did stage a couple of times to go off to war, but and I I thank God every day that I never had to. And at that time, that was probably what? Because that's when the Middle East was starting to get kind of a, Mm -hmm. a hotbed of activity, right? Right. So your tours were somewhere in the Middle East, I assume? No, my tours, I went to Japan, Okinawa, Canada, not, you know, anywhere where, again, no war zones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are some things you think about from your experience then in the Marine Corps? Well, you know, I look back and I think about the friends that I had in there. We, I had the same bunkmate for three years. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. And we... Went in about the same time, and we shared the same room for the whole three years that that I, I was in. And you know, just the, you know, you you're in a platoon, a close knit platoon, and uh, you do competitions against other platoons and things of that nature. And it's it's just a great opportunity for someone that has little knowledge of what they want to do, or people that even have a knowledge of what they want to do, because of the educational benefits. You know, the medical benefits, things of that nature. 
So, well, thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you very much. So you get out of the Marine Corps after three years. You go into the Department of Corrections in California. What did you do for the Department of Corrections? Well, I first started out at working at a women's prison, California Institution for Women. I worked there for uh, about three or four years as an officer where you had maybe a couple of hundred inmates on the unit. And then I promoted from there to a California Institution for Men and as a sergeant. And there I went to a couple of different prisons, the um, Pelican Bay, which was one of the most notorious prisons outside of Folsom and San Quentin. I worked there for a little while, and I went down to what we call the Rock in uh, San Diego, California, Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. I worked there for a number of years. And then that was called the Rock, huh? Or the, you would call because yeah. I always thought the Rock was Alcatraz. Well, <laughs> we it, this place was built on a rock, so, oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. They I don't know why, but they called it the Rock. So I'm curious. I've heard this before, and I'm not sure if it's true. And it probably depends on everyone's experience, but I've often heard that things can actually be. A little more exciting, quote unquote, in a women's prison than in a men's prison. <laughs> well, it, it depends on what kind of excitement you're talking about. You know, women, you would be amazed that well, the one thing that I really noticed is that the men were much more cleaner. Don't ask me why. Just, you know, at least where I was at, than the, the women were. It just, you know, they were very structured and they had specific things that they would, you know, requirements for each each other. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I would not think you would. That's a one you would think the yeah. opposite on. Right. What were some interesting things that happened in your time in the Department of Corrections in California? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> I'm Very sure there's question. some things you can think of or some <laughs> maybe some well-known people that pass through those yeah. facilities. So working at the women's institution, I worked with Charles Manson, the ladies that was in his group, Leslie Van Houten, Atkins, I can't think of the other lady's name, but I worked with them on a daily basis and spoke with them quite frequently. And, you know, it's it's amazing once they get away from that environment that he provided, and then you would sit there and talk to them and they were just regular people. Yeah. You know, and just we didn't they would say we just followed a, a fool and we were victim of our own circumstance. Right. Yeah, yeah. You put them in a completely different environment. Right. They're going to act differently, you know, mm -hmm. versus being I mean, I mean, that's like a. That's what a 180, I guess you could say. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> from yeah. from being, you know. So they were cooperative, very much so. Yeah. yeah, some of the most respectful people that you would work around because they were lifers. And generally, if you're if you're working at a prison, you want to work around lifers because they understand they're never going to go home or no time soon, and so they want to set program daily program, and they don't want that program interfered with. It's normally when you have issues and when you have young people come in. Or, and they're there for five, ten years. Yeah, or, or, or six months or a year or two, or gang members. You know, there's a misnomer that murderers are the worst to be around. And, I, I, you know, it's not, not necessarily the truth because normally if you commit a murder, it's a crime of passion, mom, dad, sister, brother, a friend, your girlfriend, boyfriend. 
But it's the people that are in gangs that you don't want to be around with are some 20-year-old kid that's trying to make a name for himself that's, you know, six foot five, 280 pounds. Those are <laughs> those are the people you feel uneasy around, not Absolutely. the people that have necessarily mur- murdered their wife and things yeah. like that. Right. So because the only person that person was a threat to is the ones that they killed. Yeah, they're done. Yeah, yeah usually. Yeah. So they're not going to hurt you. And as you said, they're there for life, most likely, if yeah. not life, a very, very long time. So they're not going to really ruffle feathers with you. Any specific stories that you can think of, though, off the top of your head? I mean, I know that's, I mean, 26 years is a long time. Some gruesome stories where you've seen people get slashed, stabbed, blunted to death, things of that nature. You know, you, you do see it from the top to the bottom. You see people get shot for being involved in altercations, things of that nature. And sometimes shot means that, you know, baton rounds where they, we, wooden blocks that would come out instead of a rifle round. So different things that that people being tear gassed, you know, learning how to control emergency situations like that, where you have a yard full of inmates fighting, you know, blacks against whites or Mexicans against, you know, whatever the case might be, learning how to get resources there to manage that situation in a timely manner. And and how are you trained to deal with those situations? There has to be a lot of, I would imagine, well, maybe more so this day and age, but maybe at at your time, too, it's more of a psychological thing that training you need to go through, right? It's not so much, okay, we're going to, you know, let's beef you up, you know. Right. So the training, you actually go through quite a bit of training annually, the Department of Corrections, and... You would specialize in different things, mental health. You would specialize in response teams, CERT operations, things of that nature. And then all supervisors that manage the yard would have to go to this emergency response training. And you come up as an officer under a supervisor. And so you learn things to do and things you shouldn't do. And what was your specialty in Department of Corrections then? Did you have a specialty? So actually, I worked in mental health for about mm, about 17 or 18 years. As you know, there's a custody part of the mental health. So you're working with psychologists, psychiatrists, medication lines, things of that nature, and you become an expert to a degree in that field. And so actually I was on a team that flew around the state managing or evaluating other mental health programs throughout the state. And But you always fall back on your, your basic skill sets as a, a supervisor of a facility. You know, so I, I retired as a captain and you're always, you know, no matter what you are, if an emergency happens, your first thought or your first response is to handle, handle situations. Right. Emergency situation. Yeah. Yeah. So going in to the Department of Corrections, I'm sure you had a different view than when you were finished with your 26 years. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts going into it? What were your thoughts going out of it? What were the different viewpoints that had changed through that time? Wow. It's strange when my train of thought was blood and guts. That happens, but it doesn't happen every day. 
it happens periodically. You train for it. You handle it. You write your reports, do your investigations, things of that nature. And, you know, it's one of the things that most people won't acknowledge, especially that works in law enforcement, is that when I went in, I worked at a women's prison, and I grew up, there was inmates in there that were 20, 21. And so I basically grew up with them. And we, they started a, a not a web page or something like that. And so you actually communicate with these people 40 years later. Wow. Yeah, really? 40 years later. People yeah. that were inmates. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. wild. And, I, and I'm, I'm talking about from the officer all the way up to the warden would be on this page communicating with them because back then, it, I wouldn't say you have a relationship with them, but you had, you could communicate with them in a different way as it wasn't just, I can't even put it into words, but it's, the communication was totally different. What do you do? How does that, how did that affect you mentally when you did see a slashing or anything like that? What does that do to you mentally and how do you, decompress that I, I'm sure that has to have a, a some type I don't know if it gives you any t- or gave you any type of PTSD or any other uh, officer you might have worked with I mean no you know I remember the first time I responded to a person having a seizure I had never seen nothing like that in my life and so I was you know an officer and I was a little shaken but then after a while you for the slashings and things of that nature, I really have to take that back to my childhood. I was raised on a farm. We slaughtered animals. And so the blood and guts was not that traumatic for me. And you you get accustomed to it. And you just follow protocol. You know, I always would keep a sample book of different incidents. And you follow the protocol of the different incidents, whether it be a shooting, a stabbing, whatever the case might be. And you just work through it. So I'm sure some people, I think one guy did suffer that I'm aware of some post-traumatic issues because he shot and killed an inmate. And it wasn't necessarily the one he was aiming at. It was two inmates in an altercation. So he shot the aggressor, but the bullet went through him and killed the the victim. So it sort of messed him up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That would be hard to carry on yeah. with that on your conscience. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine having to go through that. So you do your 26 years in California at the Department of Corrections. Then then where do you right. go? Well, even during that 26 years, I had took a break. And for three years, I came back here, opened an auto repair shop when I was about 33 years old. My father was ill. And uh, my mom had passed, and I always made a a personal commitment to come back, and he would never die by himself. He would have one of his children with him. And so everybody had pretty much moved away to a great degree or was not available. And so I quit my job and moved back and opened an auto wrecking yard. Just like your dad. Just like my dad. Okay. (laughs) Did you take—was it a brand-new one, or did you just take over what he had? I took over what he had initially, and then I built on that and moved it to the main street. And And what was the name of it? I named it after my dad. Okay. Yeah, Tom Hodgins' son. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So you come back for three years mm-hmm. and you're... Well, about maybe f- three or four years, something like that. Until yeah. your dad passed? Until he passed. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you're... I went back to California to finish my career. So did you know that you were just going to be staying temporarily or were did you get a phone call with an offer that you're like, okay, I can't turn this down? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, I had a pretty good rapport with the warden that I worked with. And, you know, my children were still in California and I just could not fathom them not being raised with their father in the house. So I moved back and raised my children. And that that was my primary reason. And then it got closer and closer to retirement time, so I might as well stay and, and finish this out. So then once you retired from the Department of Corrections in California, then did you stay in California for a while, or did you wind up coming back home after that? So it was always in my heart to come back and do for Pembroke and Hopkins Park. I always contributed to different children's programs, things of that nature, even though I was 2,000 miles away. And so when I did decide, just packed up one day, moved back, and again started the—and I was buying rental properties at the time here. You could—I couldn't believe that the houses were, you know, in California, we were going for, in the 80s, for like 60000 a hundred thousand, and then when when I got about the nineties, when I came back, you could buy a house here in Pembroke for ten or fifteen thousand. It was just blew me away. So I said, "Give me five or ten of those." <laughs> yeah, your money, your your California money went a so lot much further. farther, right? In right. Pembroke, yeah, it went much much farther in Pembroke. And so another thing was, I could tell that the residents didn't have suitable housing. And so I wanted to make available housing for them where they could live in decent conditions. And so I bought a number of houses, a number of pieces of property. You could buy property at the land auction for $250, $300, where now that same property will cost you 25000 just for the land, not the house. The house is now over 100000 even in Pembroke. Wow. So, yeah. That's incredible. So you came back, you bought a lot of land or houses yeah. mm-hmm. and probably fixed them up Correct. to rent them right. to, to people so they could have right. some decent housing. Yeah, I rented some and then some, you know, I always felt that if you owned a house that you would stay in the community. I knew our population was dwindling. And so I carried the mortgages for some folks so they could buy a house. Or I would sell them a house at a discounted price where, you know, local residents could could afford to stay. Because my train of thought is if you're going to pay five or $600 at the time, the rents went up, then you might as well own the house that you're in. Why would you rent when you could yeah, you pay could a mortgage? Own it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you probably did some rent to own. Correct. Then. Yep. Right. Okay. In fact, I'm doing some right now. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. That we need more of that. I feel like I don't hear about that as often as it used to be. Mm-hmm. You know. So, so when you did come back for that second and final time from California, what time frame? What year? Uh, that was 2012. Okay. And so about ten years ago. Right. And so for about the first year or so, I fixed 
my rentals up, I just spent a lot of time learning how to do carpentry work, uh, putting floors in, walls, repairing windows, putting tubs and sinks and things of that nature in. Then I decided that I was going to reopen my auto wrecking yard. And so, well, I had a tenant there. He he had moved out. So I refurbished that, moved in. And one day somebody came to my house and said, hey, we would like for you to run for mayor. <laughs> and you're like, why? <laughs> like, no, I'm fairly did, decent did in you, the housing market. Did, did you, <clears throat> were you enticed by the idea or? It, it is a feeling. It certainly is a, a feeling that, you know, I'm in a position where my management skills, leadership skills, I could move the community to a, a higher level. And so I thought about it for a, a little while. And, then, and this was what? How long ago when that? Probably 2013, 2014. Okay. So you hadn't, you'd been a, yeah. back for a couple mm-hmm. years right. at that point. Right. Right. So, so, yeah, you get the knock. Who was the person that, that, Knocked on your door. Well, actually, it was the current mayor's staff that came and said, we would like you to take over to because we feel you would serve the community a little bit differently. So that was the move in. That was, you know, so I ran. I like the, the former mayor. He's a good guy. He, he wants to, wanted to do things for the community as well. I think I had just a different point of view. And... So I was fortunate. I won. And in 2014 or 2015? 2015. In 2015. 2015. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So you've been mayor since. Right. Okay. Right. And how is, I w- wondered, the village of Hopkins Park, how is the, the government set up structure wise? Is it a mayor and then trustees or how is it? Right. So in the village of Hopkins Park, you have the mayor or the president mm-hmm. and then you have six trustees. You have a clerk, which in a lot of municipalities is elected position. It's an appointed position for the village of Hopkins Park. And then you have your, you know, your clerks and uh, your other auxiliary staff. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, So like the clerk would have been someone that you would have been able to appoint yourself. (laughs) Correct. And and I think that's really a good, a key thing for the community because you don't want to have a person that's in an elected position, you're the mayor, you you get a clerk, and you don't work well together. You want somebody in that office that you have a decent rapport with. Sure. So, so you mentioned earlier talking about a lot of people leaving the village of Hopkins Park, you know, the population kind of diminishing over the years. And what do you think caused that? Well, the number one and two things that created that situation was a lack of affordable housing. And when I say not just affordable, but housing, period, there was no housing, no apartments for children, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old to go and occupy. And so when they got they would move to Moments or Kankakee or St. Anne, somewhere where there were apartments. I can afford an apartment. I can't afford to maintain a house, put a new roof on or windows, whatever the case might be. But I can pay my rent, make sure that that's done, and all I got to do is go back and forth to work. And, you know, a lot of people I talked to, that's that was their rationale for leaving. And the second thing was jobs. There were no local jobs in the community for uh, years and years. And There have been some 
big warehouses or factories, though, over the years, either in Hopkins Park or in Pembroke, though. The, the names aren't striking yeah. my, my brain right now, but I know there were some. <clears throat> there has been some over right. the years. So it's one manufacturing company or building out there. It's called the, uh, well, we, it's got different names, uh, different businesses in it, the Pouch Lab Nestle was Nestle, in there. That's who it was. Um, that's who I'm yeah. thinking of. And so that building right now, we're the, it, that's strictly under Pembroke Township, and, and you have a township supervisor, and he has his own board of trustees. And so they, unfortunately, has been unoccupied for a number of years. But we're hoping, with and I'm pretty sure because we do have some people looking at it, once once the gas line comes in, then that building will be reoccupied because it's extraordinarily expensive to heat a building of that magnitude, and it's a huge building, with electric or propane. And so that's what Nestle did. Correct. They were there, right? right. They were and, and actually, the, the building has been expanded since they were there. Okay. And so it would be just extraordinarily expensive to heat that, you know, during the winter or cool it during the winter. I yeah. mean, the summer. Right. Now, the, you know, Hopkins Park, Pembroke Township has been trying to get natural gas lines in there for forever at this point. Where does it stand today? Well, you're right. We have been trying to get natural gas forever. I was looking at one of our surrounding communities, and they had their gas lines upgraded in 1931. So they had it before that, but in 1931, they had it upgraded. And so we are looking very good as far as the natural gas line coming to Pembroke right now. It's there's no nothing to hold it. We've done all the footwork, all the legwork. It's gone through all the legislation. So it has been passed, right? It's the just a matter. It. It's just a matter of going through the, <clears throat> right. the motions at this point. Correct. Right. Okay. Right. So that's what I was wondering about. I couldn't. I thought it. It finally did get passed mm-hmm. by the governor. So it's right. just. And that was just. Earlier this year no, in 2022, that, right? Or was it last year? It was last year. It was last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. So mm-hmm. what's the then? What's the step that we're you're going through right now? If you can, I don't know if you can divulge. Yeah. That, well, there's some formalities <laughs> that NICOR is going through, and that you know to get everything finalized. But I don't see any roadblocks whatsoever. Pretty soon they will have a link to a page where if you want to update. You can go to that, and it'll say where what the status is. But it's moving along extraordinarily well. Uh, I'm very satisfied at this point that we've made the progress, and we're at the place that we need to be. And what is the current population then of the village of Hopkins Park? So we have about six or seven hundred residents in Hopkins Park in Pembroke Township. We have about twenty three to twenty five hundred residents. And it's constantly growing. We have had a huge influx of Hispanics move in. And that's not just in Pembroke and Hopkins Park. That's throughout the United States. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and I mean, we especially see that here just countywide. Right. Throughout the whole entire county, whether right. you're looking at Kankakee or you're looking at Moments or Hopkins Park, Mantino. Right. You see a lot mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. A so. lot of them have come in and dwarfed the amount of property that I've invested into. I mean, they've come and bought huge swatches of land from uh, farms and other 
people that were interested in selling their property. And the good thing is they're maintaining it extraordinarily well. They're putting up fences. They're cleaning it up. They're houses that one might think would be bulldozed down. They've restored it, and they're living there. And so our, our population is on the rise in the community and in our school district. So that's a good thing. It's where where one generation leaves off, another one picks it back up and Correct. takes it forward. And not just another generation, but different race as well. Mm-hmm. So because what Village of Hopkins Park or Pembroke Township as a whole was mm-hmm. founded by African-Americans, right? Uh, Primarily? Pop, Pop Tedder settled Pembroke Township in the 1800s. Yeah. Him, him and his wife and a number of children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, would that have been before or after the Civil War? Do you know? I have no idea. Yeah, okay. I, know. I mean, <laughs> I know we're not, question. I mean, yeah, that's a, that we are going to be, just in case anyone is wondering, we are going to do a separate podcast or an, a separate episode one day just on the whole history of Pembroke Township and, and mm-hmm. Hopkins Park that we're not obviously diving into that today, but just off, just thought of it off the top. Well, of my head. I'll say this here. Pembroke was part of the Underground Railroad. So that should give you an idea of where where we were in yeah. history. OK, yeah. so that would have. Yeah, that would have been pre Civil War. Right. Yeah. So I knew I did know that about the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. So so the gas line is coming what else is going on in Hopkins Park? And I mean, since you've been you've been mayor since 2015, that's seven years now. Mm-hmm. Um, what what has happened in that time for for you and for the village of Hopkins Park? Well, it's a few things we've you know tried to really invest in the community. It, the, I think the greatest thing that you can say right now is the village mayor, the township supervisor, the Kankakee County board representative from that area, we have a great working relationship. And that's one of the things that has held us back is our relationships, our ability to work with Kankakee County officials and amongst ourselves. And uh, I have pretty good rapport, and as does the others, with Kankakee County officials as well. In fact, our former mayor, not the one before me, but before that, he's been the mayor, the township supervisor currently, and he also served on the uh, Kankakee County board. You're talking about Sam Payton, right? Sam Payton. (laughs) I just saw him the other day. (laughs) He's the man. Yes, he is. Other things we've done is we currently, the village of Hopkins Park has the most equipment that we have had probably in our history, at least to my knowledge. When I came into office, we had zero equipment. We had not even a push lawnmower, and we were a commercial operation. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. We got to mow the grass, but we don't have a lawnmower. (laughs) So so I bought mowers. I've even bought commercial mowers. We have now have a bush hog. We've had, we have, we didn't have any trucks to push the snow. And so now we have, we just bought our second truck with salt spreader and things of that nature with a snow plow. I, I believe in making passive income. So meaning that that way we don't have to raise residence taxes. So we had somebody come in, they wanted to put a, a tower into our community. And like a water tower? Uh, no, a, uh, like for oh, uh, cell phones, uh, cell phones okay. things of that nature. And so what I did was said, that's fine. You can put this here on village property and what we're going to do is we, I don't want to want lump sum payment. I want you to pay me a payment every month for infinity. 
And because when I researched it, that's what other communities were doing. And there was more benefit in doing that versus like, OK, oh, here's here's a couple million or whatever right. it is. Well, it's not that much. Believe me. Well, but they, well the, there was one sold before I came into office and it sold for like twenty thousand dollars, a lump sum. And so when that sold, that 20000 once it was spent, that was it. Was it was gone. Yeah. And so what I did was I said, you, and so we receive over $20,000 a year just by renting that one location. In fact, I just signed a contract not too long ago for a solar company to put a solar field down at our sewer plant. And that's another monthly payment for Infinity. And so that's how we have been able to buy equipment increase staff salaries, things of that nature, without going or dipping into residents' pockets by raising their taxes. So, Yeah, because otherwise, what other options would you have, right? I right. mean, that, that's by what, raising yeah. the property taxes, that would be that, your own That's what option. most communities do, yeah. So yeah. also, we had when I first started out, we had one maintenance man working four hours a day. I don't know how they did that, how they managed, but now we have three. Uh, well, we just one, so we have three positions. We have more office personnel, and their salaries, in some cases, have almost doubled from when I started uh, seven years ago. One of the things I also did, probably the first thing I did within the first five minutes of sitting down was I reduced the mayor's salary. For this $27.50 a month, I reduced that down to $1,000 a month. And we were also able to take that, that revenue and, again, support other staff and buy more equipment. And then other things like the, the liquor commissioner, I stopped take, I didn't take that. And other perks that the mayor would do. And then I just to fix it, to make sure it stayed right, I, we did an ordinance to make sure that the mayor could not get additional perks without coming back to the board. So And requesting them well, or, or you, you voting can, on them, right? You can only get a pay increase six months before the next election. So I did this here in a couple of months ago. And so the mayor's salary is fixed now until for the next four years. Now, it can be raised again, but it has to be three and a half years from from now. Okay. So it, it's locked. And that that was intentional because we don't want people to come in and gouge. think this is, it's a part-time job. Yeah, well, and right, because, and it probably helps, <clears throat> helps you plan things financially for the Absolutely. village, I would imagine, mm-hmm. as well. So... Because, and as far as fire and police, that's covered from who? Well, right now, the we have a volunteer fire department, and we've had that for infinity. It is, it's, we've always had. It's always residents. been that way. And so I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the things that uh, I wanted to do was reward our fire department personnel that volunteer their time, their effort, their resources. And so I hired all of the fire department personnel that I could so they could timely respond to fires in the community and still get paid their salary. Because if you leave your job, you're, you know, so we still cover them. losing your wage. As long as you're within your work hours, we cover your salary. We appreciate what they do. And we thank them for their service by this small token of appreciation. Uh, as far as our police uh, go, we had a police department some years ago 
And unfortunately, that went away. And we're currently under the sheriff's department, and they do a pretty good job policing the area as best they can. Okay, so, well, that's... But, but we are working currently on establishing perhaps either enhancing the sheriff's ability to help us out there or having our own police department. Sure. And I'm sure that had to go along with the decline in population at that time, probably couldn't afford to keep your own police department. I mean, the costs for that, I can only... It's are astronomical. Astro- yeah, yeah, astronomical. Yeah. yeah. Why should a person move to Hopkins Park? What does Hopkins mm. Park have to offer? Serenity. Yeah. Peace of mind. Yeah. And beautiful nature outdoors. You can ride your horses. You can go fishing, you you know, within limits. We, you know, people ride their quads, things of that nature. They can go outdoors and go hunting. You can still buy a house or property extraordinarily reasonable. And, and, you know, where you might get a lot in Chicago, uh, you can have acres in Pembroke or in Hopkins Park. So that's a, a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Does the river go through? No. Hopkins Park? No. Okay. No. You I mentioned wish. fishing. You mentioned fishing. I was trying to right. think. I was like, I don't think the river goes yeah, through. A lot of folks go to Willis Loo, which is nearby, okay. and, and there's local creeks and things of that oh, nature. If sure. you were raised in the area, you know where you, they're you at. You know where they're at. Yeah. <laughs> we have come a long way over the last seven years. We have enhanced the village overall with equipment, more personnel. We have developed working relationships with local county, state, and federal officials to bring things to the community. We have a few high, high, you know, things that are on our list that are appears that they may come to fruition. I won't discuss it right now, but, (laughs) you know, you never make a promise that you can't follow. But things are really looking good for some things that our community desperately need. And that's because we work well as a team and we work well with officials outside the community to bring resources to the community. Okay. Well, well said, Mayor. Really uh, appreciate your time and coming out here and learning more about you and learning more about Hopkins Park. So, Just a regular guy with a title. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I might hit you up one day and ask you for a, a tour of the village. So I've Come never, on down. I've never properly explored the village of Hopkins Park yet. So it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Well, I always say the one hidden gem out there is Bible Witness Camp. That's what I've been told by other guests on the podcast. They've told me about that camp. And that's still a thing that goes on? Absolutely. I went there as a child, port them today, and I take, anytime I take somebody on a tour, I always take them there. And in fact, State Representative Nick Smith was out about a month or so ago, and I took him there, and his staff was just in awe of the beauty, the serenity, the trees surrounding the place. And um, it's a great place for children to go that's safe and explore nature. All right. Thank you, Mayor Hodge. And thank you. 
That concludes this episode of Kankakee Podcast. I'm Jake Lamore. Thank you so much for listening. Also, a special thank you to our patrons for helping make this episode possible, including Karen Bishop, Jake Lee, Jesse Arsenal, Dave Barron, Daryl Damper, Samantha Rocknowski, Lake Iverson, Travis Garcia, Jane Bostwick, Don Harrison, Simon Topless, Scott Wright, Carrie O'Connell, Jamie Race, Joanne Barry, Anthony Vicelli, Eric Olson, Carl Erps, Jeff and Rosa Carroll, Teague Dreenan, Sandy and Steve Twait, and Rose Lucky. Now, to become a podcast patron, go to kankakeepodcast.com, click on the patron tab, and if you pledge $5 or more per month, you'll also hear your name announced on an episode. There's also other rewards like early access to new episodes or extended versions of episodes. Your monthly pledge is truly appreciated. Our goal right now is to reach $400 per month, and right now we're about halfway from reaching that goal. So please sign up for the patron program today at kankakeepodcast.com. Our theme song is written and performed by Lupe Carroll and recorded by Daniel Bishop. This river can